This podcast contains language which some people might find offensive. Your mum might be alright with it, your dad'll definitely be fine with it, but granny might not like it. That said, your kids might find it educational and learn some new words to make them look cool at school. Also, there are many views and opinions that you might not share, and some fabricated situations that obviously didn't happen. Listener discretion is advised. Just a couple of blokes Pouring over liner notes We're the rock geeks Yeah, we're the rock geeks Who played on that? Who played on the other? Who did the album for the album cover? We're the rock geeks Yeah, we're the rock geeks Oh, we're the rock geeks Hey, oh. My name is Phil, this is Julian. Hello. We are two middle-aged northerners, a.k.a. the Rock Geeks, taking a deep dive into albums that we love and exploring who made them and how, where and when they were made. Last time out, we took a look at Weezer's sophomore effort, Pinkerton, and thanks very much if you took time out of your day to listen to that. It's much appreciated, and we hope that you enjoyed what you heard. Full disclosure again, we are recording this prior to completely getting our podcasting act together. But if you haven't already listened to that episode, you can probably do so via our website or whichever streaming service you subscribe to. On this episode of The Rock Geeks, we are getting into the weeds with one of the thrash metal genre's defining albums, Metallica's Master of Puppets. Is there a name for the third album? Debut? Sophomore? I, I don't think there is. I don't think there is either. Breakthrough, just, just maybe. Wondered, yeah, I guess so. I guess so in a lot this case. Of third albums are the breakthrough <coughs> album, aren't they? They were then. I don't think you get a chance nowadays, do you? You get to album three and you've not made it, you probably Yeah, I think your third album's an independent effort. <laughs> it is, yeah. That you've licensed out. Yeah. <laughs> so what what are your what are your first um recollections of Master of Puppets? Where did you first encounter it? I was thinking about this today actually, and I reckon I probably heard of Metallica around the time this coming out through people having Metallica t-shirts and being and seeing them on the front of magazines because they definitely weren't on TV or on the radio or anything like that. Um, so I think that's probably it. I think I, I were aware of Metallica, Master of Puppets and that kind of as, as a song title, as an album title, way before I started listening to them. What about you? You'll never guess how I got introduced to Master of Puppets. Go on. Me dad... All right, okay. How's that? Um, well, my dad... He always was cutting edge of his musical yeah. taste, to be fair to him. <laughs> well, my dad worked in a bank, and uh, one of his colleagues was into heavy metal, and uh, right. younger colleagues, I should probably add. Um, and my dad said, oh, my, you know, my son's into heavy metal. And um, this uh, bloke that my dad works with very kindly lent a vinyl copy. Like, an, I'm, right. I'm imagining an original... Yep vinyl copy of Master of Puppets uh, for my dad to bring home to, so that I could listen to it Right, at his recommendation. And that rings a bell now. I remember you playing me Sanitarium, I think. I think I don't know where it fits in the timeline of us liking different metal bands, you know, whether it was um, like around the Iron Maiden times or whether it was a bit later on, but I think I remember Sanitarium and then I remember you playing me Battery as well and saying, wait till this kicks in. And it's taking ages to kick in, yeah. and then it obviously it does. Yeah. Well, obviously, because um, my dad presented it to me, I completely ignored it after that because you know 
even if it is the coolest metal album of I the know. era, if your dad presents it to you, you're not having it, are you? No. Your dad took us to his first gig, though, to be fair to him. Yeah, this is true. The Shadows at yeah. Leeds Grand, 1986. Oh. Rock and roll. I think it was 80, maybe 80, no, maybe a bit after that, actually. 88, yeah. maybe. Come and see a rake guitarist, Phil. Who is it, Dad? Eric Clapton? Jimi Hendrix? And Marvin. Marvin. Good gig, that, actually. It probably was, actually. If we saw it now, we'd probably quite enjoy it, but I think yeah. at the time it was probably a bit much. The harmonies were very good, better than I expected for an instrumental band. I think we brought the average age down of the audience quite considerably. Yeah, to about 72, probably. Um, okay, so Metallica, Master of Puppets. Uh, band members, we have James Hetfield, lead vocals and guitars, Kirk Hammett, lead guitar, Cliff Burton on bass guitar, Lars Ulrich on drums. Um, the album was semi-produced and engineered by uh, Fleming Rasmussen, uh, assistant engineer Andy Robleski, I think I'm saying that right. Um, the mix engineer for this album was uh, Michael Wagner. Uh, the assistant mix engineer was Mark Viltzkak. I think I'm saying that right again. I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. Um, the album was mastered um, by George Marino. Again, that rings who a bell. mastered Pinkerton right, okay. in the last episode. Um, the album was recorded um, between September and December of 1985 at Sweet Silent Studios in Copenhagen. Um, and according to the liner notes on Metallica's official website, the album was also mixed at Sweet Silence, but... An article written by Sarah Jones for MixOnline.com states that the master tapes were sent to Amigo Studios in Los Angeles for mixing. Right. So that's where it was mixed. Um, and it was released on the uh, 3rd of March in the US, 7th of March in the UK, uh, 1986 on uh, Music for Nations slash Electra. Very good. I'm sure it said Vertigo on my vinyl copy a few years later. Or was it afterwards they went to Vertigo? Um, I, I, I don't know, but that I'm rings a bell. Sure. It does ring a bell. Should we look yeah. at what else was going on? Why not? Let's have a look at that. Go on, tell so, me. So, around that time, UK and or yeah, UK and France announced plans to construct the Channel Tunnel. That was in January. Also in January was the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. I remember that. I remember watching that on telly. I do as well. I can remember watching... It was some TV show, some kids' TV show. It might have been like Magpie or something like that. Right. And they interrupted it, and then it went to a <laughs> studio. We interrupt this kids' TV yeah, show to bring to you some you like distressing a, footage. Of a plane exploding and killing <laughs> yeah. everyone on board. Enjoy your tea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, Pixar, founded by John Lasseter, along with Steve Jobs. Never heard of him. Uh, April 26th was the Chernobyl disaster. See, I can kind of remember these things. You know, like this is, I'm yeah. sure we'll look at some albums where we're talking about histor historical things that I can't really remember and I can just, I just know because I've read about them yeah. or people have discussed them at length since. Yeah. But I do remember the Chernobyl disaster. I remember the Space Shuttle disaster. In June, the World Cup, the Hand of God, Maradona. We deserved it, to be fair. Don't say that. We'll have to agree to disagree on that. And then Argentina actually went on to win it. Um... The band Sweet Children, now known as Green Day, was formed by the lead singer, Billy Joe Armstrong. Yeah. Um, Probably a very wise name change there. Yeah, I think so. So, what do you think was the top ranking film that year? 1986? Yeah. Um, I would say Back to the Future. Mm, no. I think Back to the Future was the year before. It's Top Gun. 
Top Gun. Top, so mm. top ten was Top Gun, Crocodile Dundee. Yeah. Platoon. It's for, wash, it's for wa- washing your ass. Yep. <laughs> That's not a life. Um, Platoon, which I've never seen. It's a B-Day. Yeah. I've seen Platoon. Good film. Albums. Oh, some classics. Right, metal ones. Go on. I'll Lay name on the me. album and then you tell me who did it. All right, go on. Slippery when wet. Bon Jovi or um, By Jovi, yep. the Yorkshire tribute band. Yep. Rain in Blood. Slayer, of course. Look what the cat dragged in. Oh, God. It's Lots be, of makeup. It's going to be something like Twisted Sister, isn't it? Close. Poison. Poison. Peace sells, but who's buying? Megadeth. The final countdown. Europe. Somewhere in time. Oh, probably one of my favourite Maiden yeah. albums, that. Yeah. Great. Uh, Dancing Undercover. I wonder what they mean by that. Uh, is it a glam... Yeah. Hair band. Yeah. Um, dancing Undercover. Warrant. Rat. Rat. Yeah. Other stuff Almost. that came out. Licensed to Ill. Beastie Boys. Beastie Boys, yeah. yeah. Graceland by Paul Simon. The Queen is Dead. The Smiths. So yeah. by Peter Gabriel. True Blue. Madonna. Yeah. Uh, Parade <laughs> by Prince. A strong year. It is a strong year, actually. A good year for pop music, I'd say. Word Up by Cameo. It's a classic. And the best of all, New Kids on the Block by New Kids on the Block. 86? Hanging tough. That's what it says here. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's a lot earlier than I thought. Shall I verify it while you... Um, I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. Oh, I don't disbelieve you. I, you know. There was a lot of boy bands um, played in our house because of my sister, so... Um, what, actually I, turned up and... Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Has your sister got connections? Yep, 1986. Yeah. But the album failed to garner any attention at the time of its release. I don't know why we've drifted into talking about New Kids on the Block in detail, but um, yeah. It's a nice little detour. (laughs) It is a very nice detour. Yeah. And on that bombshell. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get back to Metallica. Why don't we have a, a quick chat about uh, a quick chat, an in-depth chat about the track listing? Um, we'll start with uh, the first song because it's, uh, as Julie Andrews said, it's a good place to start. I'm paraphrasing, of I course. I think she was she was probably talking about this, probably this actual song. Yeah. This is my favourite Metallica song, without Ever? a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, really? Ba- yeah, battery. Wow. It's it's everything I like about Metallica, and it's got it's got none of the bits that annoy me about them. You know, right? Okay. We, we'll get we'll get onto the bits yeah. that annoy you later, but for yeah. now, yeah. what are the bits that you like? I just love it from beginning to end. Um, it's like it's, it just proves how good James Hetfield is to be able to sing yeah. that and play it at the same time. It's just remarkable, really, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I would struggle to do one of those things. Yeah, um, and when they played it live, if you listen to any uh, kind of live performances of it, well, since really. But especially on that tour, they played it even faster. Yeah. I mean, we don't know how, you know, you can't hear it in as minute detail as you can on albums, so it might have been sloppy as hell, but yeah. it sounds all right to me. 
Yeah. You know. Well, adrenaline and beer can uh, know. help you out a lot if you want to play stuff faster. Yeah. So it's like, I think I've talked to you about this before. My An old colleague of mine thought that the album was like being punched in the head for 45 minutes. <laughs> and this is kind of like round one. And he's right. Yeah. He's absolutely right. It's like, it's like the first round with Mike Tyson. It is. And you're thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to go back for another one. Yeah. So it's, I mean, you're probably going to talk a bit more about this, how they managed to get the guitar sounding so tight with each other when we talk about the recording process yeah uh but i just think it's just i just think it's remarkable the bass is not doubling the guitar when that um that xbox game ps4 game yeah guitar guitar hero that's it yeah i don't i never played it but i know that there was a way where you could just listen to and rip off the actual tracks stems yeah and if you listen to Cliff Burton playing on this, he's not doubling that guitar if he's doing something which is uh, not quite so busy but locks in really, really well with it. Um, if you read the Poisonous YouTube comments about why he's doing it, people are like, oh, because he can't do it. I think it's just because it sounds better. It makes it sound yeah. weightier, the fact he's not doubling things exactly. Um, yeah, although his, his bass is mixed quite low in the mix, as it always is uh, with Metallica stuff. What do you reckon? Yeah. What's your thoughts on this one? You know, I mentioned earlier that part of the reason why I disregarded this album initially and took a while to get back into it um, was because A, because it came from my dad, but B, because I must have been a bit, pretty timid child because... <laughs> you scared of it. Punk rock scared <laughs> me and and thrash metal scared me. Like yeah. Slayer, I was like, oh, God. Yeah. Like, yeah. Slayer scared the shit out of me when I was a, a, a kid. Um, and I think the aggression... Of this opening track is something that I wasn't prepared yeah. for, or you know, or used to, because um, mm. it is a really, really aggressive um, statement. Even the opening guitar has got like a really sort of almost rough. Even though it's a nylon strung guitar, it's got like a rough, grungy kind of mm. feeling, and it's um, like the first guitar I played was like a nylon strung thing, and I used to strum it near the bridge because it made a more metallic mm. sound. Mm. Um, and it, and to me that sounded like an electric guitar, and and that kind of feels like what they're doing on this as yeah. well. You know, they're, they're like they're making it sound a lot rougher than it actually is by I think playing it nearer the bridge. Have you ever read anything that says it is actually a classical guitar? I've read no. loads of references to it being an acoustic guitar, and I just listen to it and just think well, it's obviously a classical guitar, is yeah. that? But I've never read any reference to it. It sounds a bit like um, like a Western. You know, yeah, like yeah. that kind of thing. Sort of not flamenco. That's the wrong word, isn't it? I know um, what you mean, though. And and that. they were using uh, Ennio Morricone's yeah. Yeah. Um, "Ecstasy of Gold," weren't they? They were, yeah. For the uh, intro. Either way, it's it. really dead strings, isn't it? I think yeah, it's. Yeah. I read about it was it was based not like ripped off, but the idea behind it building and going from something really quiet to getting bigger and bigger. And you're not thinking it can get any bigger, but then it gets even bigger and just builds and builds and builds from a piece of music that used to be on, like... You know, like, TV just plays all night now, doesn't it? Yeah. But like, yeah. if you recall, when we, TV would stop, wouldn't it? And yeah. it would, like, there'd be nothing on, or just, like, a test screen thing. Play the national anthem, and then you'd get to bed. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in America, um, James Hetfield heard this song called Povan, or Pavan, sorry, by somebody called Favre. I don't know this piece of music. I have listened to it, and it doesn't bear any resemblance to it, really. Dynamic-wise, it does, but not, you know, note-wise and so on. And it just builds and builds and builds and builds. 
Um, so I think that's where they got that idea from. But how many guitars do you reckon are on it when everything's in um, just before it breaks down to the main riff? 12. I reckon at least 12. I was, I, I've written down here that it is such a dense-sounding yeah. record, guitar-wise. Um, and I know that there's at least four rhythm yeah. guitars per song. Are they panned and then a centre one and then each one's double-tracked maybe yeah, or yeah. something like that? Yeah, on, on we'll get into this later <laughs> on, but on different guitars to yeah. give it that sort of different sound. Um, yeah, it, it is such a dense-sounding album. I mean, it's kind of... It's no surprise, really, that the bass is, sits where it does in the mix because, you know... Where else is it going to go? Yeah, that, that sonic space mm. is already being occupied And by, they put it on last as well, don't the they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, I, I, as much as they've had some really great bass players, and obviously I'm saying this as somebody who plays bass, they've never really... It's never been something that's... I don't feel like it's that important to them. Yeah. You know, it's always kind of just something that they put on to kind of just so they've got some bass on it. And if you listen to Justice for All, there's none on it whatsoever. Yeah. But yeah, it's really low in the mix. And the sound yeah. of the bass isolated is really muddy. It's really distorted. And like you're saying, maybe there's just not enough space for it to be any higher. And it would yeah. just sound really muddy if it was even further up in the mix. Yeah. Interestingly enough, this main riff, the galloping one at the beginning, James Hetfield played it for um, Kirk Hammett on an acoustic guitar when they were watching The Young Ones once, <laughs> which I really like. <laughs> do you think it was the episode with Motorhead? I don't know. Maybe it was. Let's pretend it was. Yeah, where they, they do the guitar solos and the director yeah. puts the camera on the wrong guitar. And on that deluxe edition, there's a, um, a Fostex demo of it, like James Etfield's Riff Tapes, and that's got loads of layers on it. Yeah. When do you reckon they came out, them Fostex thing? You know, like the little four tracks? Early eighties, was it right? Maybe okay. I, I know, like Tascam were knocking them out in early eighties. Yeah, so I imagine Fostex were. Yeah, so he's, doing the same. Which was the better one? Which was the Betamax and which was the VHS? Uh, do you know? I think Tascam, uh, Fostex are good. They did some good stuff later, but I think early doors Tascam were they? were the better ones. I think they're more sought after these days. Yeah, yeah. one of the things that um, I think is really impressive, given Hetfield's um, age at the time was having the maturity to know that punching someone in the face for too long yeah. gets pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. So to stick in a middle-eight instrumental breakdown where the tempo eases off mm. and a bit of a melodic riff comes in. Not, it's not for long, though, is it? No, it's not, but it's needed. Yeah. And he had the intelligence to to put it in there. Um, and it's kind of... One of the things that sort of made me sort of think, oh, you know, this is maybe something that I, I could get into, was was that sort of first bit of the middle eight where I kind of felt like, oh, this is a bit like Maiden. It's a bit mm-hmm. more sort of... Like a reference point for you. Yeah, yeah. It was <coughs> a bit me. of a reference point for me. So, yeah. you know, hats off to, to James Hetfield for uh, being savvy enough to, to stick that in there. Absolutely. Um, and the guitar solo, Kirk Hammett, trademark, wah-wah. Do you know what? Whittle away solo. I, I, I'm on the side of Lars Ulrich and Kirk Hammett throughout all of this. I know people have their, they kind of detract from their uh, abilities or their contributions to albums. But if you, if you listen to any of these songs in demo form without the guitar solos on, they, they're just not, there's something no. key which is a part of the song missing. 
So even though you might think, oh, well, he's just whittling away on whatever uh, with his wah-wah pedal, there's a lot of great stuff in there, which is really, really oh, important yeah. to the songs. I don't disagree. I mean, you know, the, the, for a, for an opening solo on the opening track of your breakthrough album, it's it's a yeah. bloody good one. Yeah. Um, and it's obviously something that is thought out, and you know, it's kind of got that sort of almost in in parts. It's almost got a sort of George Harrison composed kind of feel to right. it, where he's not just going in. It doesn't feel like he's just gone in and gone for broke and thought, oh, fuck it, I'll just play yeah. whatever. It feels like he's actually put quite a lot of thought into the arrangement of the solo and what where it's going to go dynamically. Yeah. And, he does it a know. lot in his solos where if the song changes feel, you can definitely tell that within his solo, it's he takes a different turn with it or yeah. he changes the mood completely with it. And he does it in this one when it switches to like that like that half-timey bit. There are some songs where I don't know how he comes up with any ideas for solos over it because what's <laughs> being played in the background is so mad, especially some of the stuff on Justice for All, where it's all... It's, yeah. I just think I've no idea. I think he just thinks it's in E. I'll just... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. E, that's it. Yeah. Cool. I mean, as an opening track, what a statement. I know. What a statement. Shall we move on to the next one? Yes. <laughs> So the title track, um, I think it would be remiss of us to um, not mention Stranger Things. Yep. Um, which has led to a surge in popularity of this track. It's currently almost at 584 million players on Spotify, um, which in 1986 probably didn't seem in any way, shape or form no. possible. Um, and I think uh, never wants to miss a merchandising opportunity. I think they've... No. Uh... No. They've got Metallica Hellfire Club t-shirts now as well, haven't they, and so on. I'm sure there's some, I think there's some boots as well. They're bringing out trainery type things as well. Yeah. But yeah, it did yeah. have a surge in popularity. And I, I've, he played it. It looked like he was playing the right stuff in the right place, didn't yeah. he, on the, yeah. on the show? Yeah. There is a video on YouTube of them uh, in rehearsal with him. Is there? Yeah, he turned up. They signed a guitar for him. and Yeah. He tried to keep up. He, did, he put up a valiant effort, but... Probably played it about as well as I would. Although, didn't they mess with the sequence of the song? I remember uh, listening to it, just think, not enjoying that scene because they just shifted bits of it yeah. around, and yeah, yeah. That's, been, it, that's but, me being miserable. But he did, uh, he did do a phenomenally good it job is. of of, uh, of looking like he, his fingers were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Somebody on some social media thing said that that the song came out mid March. And Stranger Things is set at the beginning of May. How could he have learnt the song so well in such a short amount of time? <laughs> and it's like, of all the stuff in the TV show, that's the thing you're going to pick up as being unrealistic. <laughs> Blimey. <laughs> that's crazy, isn't it? So, yes, this song, I think, um, is certainly the flagship is. song on the album. Not only is it the title track, but it's the most impressive in terms of composition and arrangement, and it's got more riffs than uh, you can shake a stick at. It really has. I'm sure, like, there's there must be enough riffs in there to write another two or three songs. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. just if you get if you think about this being recorded, what was it, late '85? Yeah, and yeah. maybe two and a half years earlier, they were recording "Jump in the Fire" yeah. and stuff like that. It's quite a big leap forward, isn't it? Really? Oh, massively, massively. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, I've I've written down here in my notes that um, the arrangement is is almost classical in nature because mm. it goes through 
movements. Three, di- three, three different movements mm-hmm. before it returns to the first movement, you know. Um, I think, you know, what you were saying about him listening to classical music, you know, whilst um, leading up to the recording of this, it shows in this song. Mm-hmm. The, the arrangement is so uh, complex and, you know, um, mm. there's there's different sort of almost what you might call leitmotifs, you know, running yeah. throughout the, the whole thing. Um, it's the only one on the album that they're all credited on by the look of it, um, yeah. which is interesting. as It's probably the most varied piece of work on it. Um, so it's got um, it's got everything in it, really, that you think about Metallica. It's got funny time signature bits in it. It's got yep. loads of downstrokes. Yep. Um, it's super aggressive. It's got a quiet middle bit. It's got lots of bits which you think, oh, it sounds a little bit like something else, but I'm not quite sure what it is. Yep. Um, yeah, it's just, I think it's probably the definitive Metallica song, really, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Like you're saying, the middle bit, the slow instrumental section, um, that solo is... is Phantom of the Opera to me, mm. harmony-wise. Yeah. Um, the notes that he's using, um, very, very similar, just just different phrasing, really. Same notes, different phrasing. Yeah. I think that's um, obviously Iron Maiden influence, but it's the Cliff Burton influence as well. You know, if you read much about Cliff Burton and his influence over the band, it wasn't just he was this great bass player, but he taught them a lot about using harmonies and yeah. use of melody in songs and things like that, and that's... I think this is a good example of yeah. it, really. Which is it's quite interesting, really, because it's quite selfless of, of Cliff Burton, in a way, because it shows the total lack of ego, because, you know, he's sort of um, helping them discover a new musical language, and his bass is being almost relegated to farting along in the, yeah. in the background, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, not really um, being showcased... It, it in order for you know the the very things that he's encouraging well, to, only got, to come to the fore, you know. He's only got three songwriting credits on the album, but I would say that the the overarching influence is much bigger than those you know those three yeah. those three songs, and not just because his bass lines are really good, and although they are mixed quite pretty quietly, they they do sound really good as well. I think just like what we've just said about his his musical knowledge and how he kind of made him take a bit of a leap forward. Factoids. Go on, give us a factoid. The descending line at the start yeah. was one that James Hetfield would play on the D and G strings together, um, like when they were messing about. Right. Apparently, Kirk Hammett, he came to a, um, a rehearsal once and he'd, he heard him play that riff, but in its form that we know it now, and thought, I think I recognise that. Yeah. Um, Kirk Hammett wrote the Come Crawling Faster riff at the beginning of the pre-chorus right. type yeah. thing, but it was yeah. much longer. From listening to the riff tapes, Kirk Hammett tends to write quite long-winded riffs. Right. Which get edited down. I think the Enter Sandman one, um, that was a longer riff as well, and this is an example of it as well. Um, I think that's Lars Ulrich. He picks the riffs out, doesn't he? Do you think that arranging and editing riffs is writing a song? Um, well, I don't know. Is it, is it kind of like a, a really early form of sampling, in a way, I don't know where you know you take an existing piece of music and just make it shorter and loop it. I don't know. I'm I'm just not sure if identifying something that's good and editing it down qualifies as a songwriting credit. Well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, he, he obviously you know does have like a, a oh, big no, influence not, on. I, I'm on the fence the about material, it. You know, because if he's got a good ear for things which would go well together 
and he's got a good ear for like half a riff, which would sound good if you got rid of something at the end, yeah. which maybe wasn't. Maybe it is. I just wondered what your thoughts were of it, because yeah, I really yeah. don't know, to be honest. Maybe it's more of a producing role. Yeah, possibly. You know, um, one of the things that I, that I was going to say about Lars Ulrich's drumming, um, as I was listening... How much you love it? <laughs> yeah. He <laughs> um, gets a bad rap these he does. days. But, but it, you know, in fairness, you know, the things that he gets a bad rap for these days namely playing drum patterns that he wrote when he was in his early 20s. Oh, he's 58 now. You know, he's not going to have that same um, fluidity of motion and looseness. And, you know, he's 58. You know, he's he's just just not... He's going to have to adjust and change a few bits, you know. Um, I think sometimes, though, simplifying stuff can make it sound a bit better at times as well, especially live. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it might make sound. I do think that his his drum fills are unique in their yeah. positioning within bars. I was about and to how say how he has them because they normally you would have a beat and then you would have maybe towards the end of a bar or for a full bar at the end of a sequence you would have some kind of fill, wouldn't yeah. you? Not Lars Ulrich. No. <laughs> is it just whenever it pops into his head by the sound of it, isn't it? Well, Mid midway through, I'll just yeah, and I'll I'll make it go over the bar line as well into the next bar. Yeah. So that it kind of, but, you know. I, I think there's a comparison with Keith Moon here. Right, how now, so? Hear me out on this, because okay. they are two vastly different drummers. But um, if you listen to Keith Moon's drumming, it has been said that he puts his fills in um, to coincide with the lead vocal. Right. And when you listen to Lars Ulrich, he puts his drum fills in to coincide with the guitar riff. Right, okay. So if you if you listen to what the guitars are doing... Generally, Lars mm. Ulrich's drum fills are following that. Right. Okay. I've I think. I think anyway. he. Uh, although we just downplayed his influence on the songwriting, I think some of his drum, some of his drum lines have been um, used by James Atfield to create riffs around. I think the main one uh, found Justice for All, you know, which has got the tom fill, which sounds yeah. just like a really strange riff, um, strange fill rather. I think that came first, and then James Atfield's riff came after right. in response to that fill. So, yeah. Um, yeah, he's got a very unique way of playing drums. I don't think he's, he's had much in the way of, you know, classical training or proper lessons, especially not in the early days, because didn't Fleming Rasmussen say that he was terrible? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he, I think he said something along the lines of when they were doing um, uh, Ride the Lightning, he, he asked Lars Ulrich um, why everything started with an upbeat. Yeah. And Lars Ulrich replied, what the fuck's What's an, an upbeat? upbeat? What's an upbeat, yeah. <laughs> Um, but you were, you were he, dying to do an impression then, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Oh. I, I, can't, I can't do it. I've been trying so hard oh, to no. do a possible I can, imagine, Lars Ulrich I can I imagine you sat there in car. Practicing. The best I could do was go, one, two, three, mm. fuck! Yeah. Um, but um, Lars Ulrich's drum tech has said that um, during that time, he would spend hours and hours practicing mm. and trying to do, like, things that were seemingly impossible to do, and he would do it and do it and do it until he could do it. Getting back to um, Kirk Hammett, um, I've written down here, like, on his solo, it's got a very sort of Jeff Hanneman, Kerry King kind of vibe to it. Um, And it just feels really intense. And and what I've written here is it feels like it's slipping away Mm. from him all the time he's playing it. Like, he never quite catches up with the solo, right. if you know what I mean. 
Um, Do you think he played it all in one? No, I know. No, I don't. A few think edits so. together. Yeah, I think they'd have edited a few of them together. But you know, even if that's the case, it sounds really cohesive, mm. um, and it does sound like it's uh, you know just you know he's trying to catch it all the time. So, um, so what? What is there anything about Mass Republics that, you, that you're not too keen on? Well, you know, I said about battery has none of the elements of Metallica that I don't really like. I don't yeah. like the echoing master master bit into the middle bit. Right. Okay. Uh, or the laugh at the end. Yep. That makes me oh, feel... Oh, oh, yeah, oh. it just makes me think of terrible sound effects on horror films from the beginning, from the uh, mid-80s. But it was the 80s. I know, but everything else about it sounds like it could... It's not from the 80s. When did Nightmare on Elm Street come out? Then, around that they, time, wasn't they it? They probably watched Robert England. No, and not a minute. Maybe, maybe that's um, Fleming Rasmussen sort of showing off his studio chops. You know, it's the mid-80s and um, they're re- probably recording to tape. Yeah. Definitely recording to tape, actually. Um, I think maybe Fleming Rasmussen's like, well, you know, we could do this and do that and it'll mm, possibly. be a cool little thing to to put on, show off his uh, engineering chops, yep. if not his producing chops. And also the middle bit, the bit that sounds like Iron Maiden never really sounds very good live when they go up because yeah. it's just the two of them with the bass underneath it two really high guitars harmonising with each other. And Kirk Hammett's guitar invariably sounding out of tune. You've got to be perfectly in tune. It's got to be really tight, really precise. Because even hitting your strings a bit harder when you're both playing so high can make it go a bit sharp, can't it? So, yeah. There's just a couple of things in it that I'm not absolutely as keen on. But, you know, they're Metallica and I'm not. So, you know, it's just me. And, And, you know... It's immortalised on yes. on the record and it sounds amazing. Yep. It's a good opening two songs for an album though, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You would think that the sensible thing to do would be to follow it up with another amazing song. However. However. <laughs> <laughs> the one song that they wrote in the studio, yeah, uh, the thing that should not be, or the song that should not be, um, d- doesn't quite hit the mark for me. No. Should we ever listen to it and, yeah. and come back and have a chat about it? work that song isn't it it certainly is i couldn't be more effusive in my praise <laughs> of the first two songs and i've written down here um grinding yeah boring yeah i think that's drudgy. i think as part of the entire hal album it it's all right you know but as a song on its own there's like i've said to you before it's got bits in it that i like you know there's a couple of parts in it which i think would be very very good if they were put into other songs which were maybe a bit more exciting yeah. Uh, it's got some really good heavy bits in it. Yeah. Like all the guitars are tuned down to D standard, so they're all right. down a full tone. Right. Pitch. 
don't know if I'm using the right terminology. No, you are, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're all tuned right down. I think that's the only song they've ever done that does that. So that gives it an extra weight, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but I think that also lends to the drudginess of yeah. it. Yeah. And and I think because the tempo is it's not an especially fast song, um, and it's not super slow, but it's just in that sort of area hmm. where it, after a while you just want something else to happen that's more exciting. Like a hook. I know yeah. they're not a pop band, but if you listen to all these songs, you know, he's got quite a good ear for melody as James Etfield, yeah. hasn't he? Even yeah. at this stage within sort of Metallica's recording career, you know, like all the songs have got some have got hooks in them really. Yeah. And this one's just maybe maybe less so. I remember listening to it the first time and thinking that it's got that Live After Death. Um, you know the gravestone on the front of Live After Death? Yeah. Which oh, says, H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah it's, yeah, it's got that on it, that not dead, which eternal lie, strange uh, at right, eons. Yeah. It's slightly different on the Iron Maiden cover, but I can remember hearing it in this song and thinking, hang on a minute, I, I Do recognise that. Do you think they that. were listening to Probably. A, a lot of Iron Maiden at the time? Well, reading about this, I think Lars Ulrich has always been very very um aware of what's popular and what's going yeah. on around him yeah either to draw influence from or to rip off you know. <laughs> yes maybe <laughs> yeah um, one of the things i was going to say about lars ulrich um it's another song where his his drum fills are essentially just following the guitar part and mm. the, the 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 rhythm of the guitar but also he puts Snare accents hmm. in the weirdest places. I like, don't mind it sometimes. I think sometimes it's all right, but you know, there are this, yeah, this is just not a song that I really particularly like too much. No. Um, that acoustic guitar's got, at the beginning has got some kind of, has it got like some kind of chorusy effect yeah, on it? I've written down here very eighties. Yeah, which I'm not particularly keen on. You can't mm. argue that it's not heavy. It's very heavy, but yeah. it's just. But it's but it's like. It's like you, your 18th pancake. <laughs> yeah. It's just too heavy. I think it's. I think it probably influenced quite a lot of bands, though. I put down on my notes, I think Pantera have probably listened to this song. And this album, actually. There's lots of stuff on this which I can yeah. hear in um, in some of their songs, the bits of songs. Yeah. I, think, I think also because um, another thing that makes it quite tricky to listen to, I think, is the riff count is so low... Yeah, well, it's just I think it's four or five bits on a loop, which yeah. is unusual for Metallica, isn't it? At this yeah. stage, I think once they got to Black Album, they were they followed that blueprint a bit more, didn't they? But yeah, yeah, yes. Should we but, move on? Yes, let's uh, let's get on to um, possibly my favorite track on the whole album. I thought you were going to say favorite Metallica track? Then you've not disclosed that yet. I'm still thinking about that. Okay, well, I won't rush you, um, but. Um, I mean, this would be my top ten. This definitely. is the um, slow track four on a Metallica album. Is that is that a trend? I've not noticed. It is. So we've got Fade to Black. Yeah. One. Yeah. Unfor- it's not slow, is it? Unfor- one. It starts slow, but... Well, it, it, yeah. It, I know what you mean, but it starts off um, slow. Unforgiven. Mm. Probably my least favourite Metallica song. That song has got everything I hate about Metallica in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unforgiven 2 oh, Can you imagine writing a song called Unforgiven 2 <laughs> um, 
there's a definite Weezer element to Metallica, isn't there? Where there's just a cliff where they just kind of <laughs> fell off it. And you're just like, oh, no. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, ironically, for this album, they did record The Money Will Roll Right In as, yeah. a, as a B-side. Yeah. Um, so We're not, yeah. I remember in our early planning days of this podcast, we said we wouldn't slag off any bands ever when we were doing these so that's why we've chosen to do this instead of the Black Album. Yes. Let's just yeah. leave it at that. Right. Yeah. So let's, what have we got? let's have a quick listen to it and we'll come back and have a chat about it. It's like a live ending, isn't it? I don't know how you would end it, I suppose, but... It'll be the end of side one, won't oh, it? Oh, that's true, yeah. So they'll I probably want that to... people listen to music in slightly different ways, didn't they? Yeah. I think they'll probably want a definitive kind of way to end the first side of the album. So, yeah, I mean, as I said, I think that's one of my favourite Metallica songs ever, Um, which, you know, isn't surprising because Fade to Black is also one of my favourite Metallica songs ever, and the two seem to have... Yeah, they're more than a little similar, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Um, In the structure um, and just the general feel of them as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've sort of written down here um, that Sanitarium is 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 a masterclass in extending a melodic theme or riff to the nth degree. Mm. So, like, where the thing that should not be is repetitive to the point of being actually quite boring. Yeah. The opening arpeggiated riff. Mm. Goes on for bars and bars and bars oh, and no. bars and bars, but never gets boring, never gets dull. It's got that open E and the open G kind of ringing throughout it, which yeah. give it a really kind of odd, unsettling feel, I think. Um, the very first note is doubled on a piano, which is why it sounds as it does. Massive. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Um, Lazarit wanted the drums to sound like a heartbeat. So Fleming Rasmussen used some kind of sampling effect. <laughs> An irregular heartbeat. Yeah. Some, <laughs> uh, some kind of sampling effect that was new at the time. I can't hear it. It just sounds like a drum. sounds like a drum. drum yeah, I mean, me. it sounds like uh, all the right drums in all the wrong places <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah. It's like, yeah. what drum, is going on? A drum kit. Yeah, being dropped down some stairs. <laughs> um, yeah. It's got the quiet verse, loud chorus dynamic, which is you know is used in loads and loads of different songs. Um, I don't know how James Hetfield plays the downstrokey bit in the downstrokey, oh, more yeah. technical terminology. Yeah. Um, in the solo, um, who knows? Yeah, I, I was going to say that that, that bit kind of reminds me of one in a way. Yep. Um, but yeah, playing that. And, and multi-tracking it all on downstrokes is massively, massively yeah. impressive to me. And again, the Kirk Hammett solo, it's, well, the solos, plural. On the demo versions of it, and even the versions where it's, you know, there's the band on it and, you know, they're obviously midway through songwriting, but they've not put any solos on yet. They still, they sound good, but you're just missing that. There's just such kind of in, integral parts yeah. of the songs. Yeah. Um. And the singing as well. I think this is the first time his singing's actually 
I don't know. It just seems to be a bit of a leap forward, doesn't it? I know on yeah. Fate to Black it was a bit as well, but there's all it's still a bit rough, isn't it? But this one's, you know, there's a there's a melody, yeah, and I've... and he's following it, and and he's not just, you know, like um, there's I, a harmony as well. Yeah, well, this is it. I, I was going to say, like, I, I, one of the things I wrote for Master of Puppets and Battery was that the vocals are really aggressive, but on Sanitarium, he is actually, um, it, I, I think his vocal performance far more closely resembles his vocal abilities mm. of late, um, say, I don't know, Black Album onwards, yeah. um, than, than any other song on the album. I think um, the actual line sanitarium or the word sanitarium was meant to be an octave higher. Right, right. And Fleming Rasmussen was a bit like, no, I don't think yeah. so. So the harmony... Sanitarium. yeah. So that that is on it. It's it's on it. You can hear it on there, but you know yeah. the, he sings it lower as well. Yeah, can't imagine he'd be able to do that. Um, like I think they tune down half a step nowadays, don't they? Live, yeah. but I still think it would have been ridiculous. Yeah, totally. But, but, I, I think. Um, yeah, you you mentioned that there's vocal harmonies. I think I think on this song, the 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 harmonic um, lexicon is is being extended. Um, not only to vocal harmonies, but you know, to the guitar harmonies as well. They've got those dual yeah. um, guitar parts again, quite reminiscent of Fade to Black. And um, one. And the, one. The, the yeah. verse is like one. And, and where the harmonies come in, the structure of them, it's Metallica track four. Yeah. That's, yeah. Those three albums have got kind of the songs are very, very similar. Those track four songs in the construction of them, you know, yeah. how they build. Um, yeah. And it's it, not I, a bad thing because it works in every single one, doesn't it? Yeah. But there's definitely a, blue, a blueprint that they're following. Yeah, and there's also you know after the um, um, the the one that, the bit that sounds like uh, like one um, <laughs> after that when they go into the solo part and the, the the guitar harmony part, basically that's the rest of the song. Mm. You know, from there on out, and the way that they build it and arrange it mm. to keep you engaged and keep you you you. Um, listening, so you know they, they introduce guitar harmonies. They have a pickup in in tempo um, where um, Ulrich Lars Ulrich doubles up on the snare and 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 mm. pushes it forward. And then they bring in a solo, um, and and then they do the the um, like the stabs at the end. Mm. You know, it's a masterclass in taking one idea and arranging the hell out of it so that it just keeps you engaged, keeps you listening right to the end of the track. Brutal in it. The, the intensity <laughs> levels have been restored to their 
initial uh, yeah. level. I think it was too the, many levels. I read it's the first song they wrote for the album. Whether that means it's the first riff that you know right. anybody came up with, or it's the first one that was you know assembled into some kind of cohesive song, but it's just mental. It starts off like. Well, it's just ridiculously brutal, and then it's got an even faster bit. Yeah, yeah. And then it's got that the verse riff, which is ridiculous yeah, as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'd get sort of a third of the way into that riff and think, yeah. "What's next?" Yeah. What? I mean, going back to talking about how people used to listen to music, you bought a record; it had two sides. Yeah. You played the first, you flipped it; you played the second side. As an opening to side two, this mm. song is the obvious choice, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's got that same intensity as Battery has. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and what it's it's just got riffs for days, hasn't it? I don't know how he sings and plays it and I think because of the, the nature of that riff, it's so it's just a single note riff, isn't it? Yeah. It's all in yeah. kind of the right hand and I think he has to I've read that he he needs to he practices a lot about how to, where certain syllables go, where certain words go, when he's playing certain notes on the fretboard. So it's quite comforting to know that he is human. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, like we've said before, you've still got to be able to do it yeah. consistently and for it to sound good Yeah. after however many beers they have at the, that point in their life before they used yeah. to go on stage. Yeah. And um, unlike Barry, Cliff Burton is playing the same... It sounds it, doesn't it? the sound of it. Yeah. Um which kind of kind of makes sense because it's 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 not as um, like the battery riff is is really quite quick and short and got that um, gallop sort of repetitive gallop kind of thing. Whereas this is a little bit rhythmically. It's still really difficult to play though consistently. Diverse. Yeah. Because that yeah. riff they play it for ages and then it's on the verse and then when it it's all the way through the verse as well. So it's yeah. you, it's the same riff yeah. rhythm constantly all the yeah. way through. It, it, it's one of those songs where you don't think that, in terms of the energy and in musical intensity, you don't think they can take you any further <laughs> or any higher. And then yeah. they turn the screw again, and oh. you're off. And it's yeah. like it's just incredible how they manage to sort of. Up the ante. At I think every that return. I think that Soldier Boy made of clay bit is the fastest. It's there with Dyer's Eve as probably one of yeah. the fastest things that I think they've they've done. And they yeah. must have slowed that down. You know, like yeah. when the, I don't see how you could get it as as tight as it is. But yeah. then again, I suppose if it's the same person playing all the guitar tracks, you're going to play things in a very similar way, aren't you? Yeah, aren't and they? apparently James Hetfield is the master yeah. of double tracking. Um, which we'll get into a bit later on. Um, one of the things that, that I wrote down here um, was chorus hook. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, some super savvy songwriting where, you know, it gets to the chorus and the super fast riffing just yeah. stops and a, a, an intensity of a different kind takes over, but also gives you gives your ears a rest to take in the chorus, you know, the the, the bit that, um, the um, you know, you sing along with. The work in progress versions don't have that chorus on. Right. So it must have been one of the last things that came to it. You know, they don't have yeah. the descending line in the back to the front bit and they don't have the movement from uh, in the verse either, you know, where the guitar kind of moves upwards and then downwards again. They don't have that yeah. in either. So 
Um, I think some of the, the hookier bits of it sort of came a bit later on. Yeah, maybe maybe um, Fleming Rasmussen had a maybe an influence on that. <clears throat> um, one of the things that I noted down also was like during Kirk Hammett's incredibly long guitar solo. <laughs> um, it's I, I, you know I, I'd struggle to to play with that speed and intensity for ten seconds, let alone however many minutes it is is soloing for there. Um, they break the intensity by... They insert that bit that sort of slows down a little mm. bit. And, and um, the solo follows, kind of has a little melodic sort of reprieve, yeah. like a little a little breather where yeah. it sounds sweet almost, doesn't yeah. it? It's like a, it's like the, the, the gap where, you know, Mike Tyson stops punching you just yeah. for a second um, and then delivers a right hook to and the comes back. ribs. Yeah. Um, I've also written... There's there's quite a few Maiden references for me in this as well. You know, there's some echo in the guitar solo that reminds me of, um, mm. I think it's Another Life off Killers, maybe. Mm. Um, or Hides of March, perhaps. Anyway, um, and also there's, there's, there's one bit that's got like a real sort of somewhere in time sort of vibe yeah. in the solo as well, um, which I, I don't which know. Which came out first. Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe we should look that up. Just... I think they were. I reckon that somewhere in time came out after, but maybe it's some production technique that was really popular that everybody yeah, used yeah. at the time. Uh, September twenty ninth, September right. nineteen eighty six. So they were probably recording it. They were a good few months ahead, weren't they? They were, yeah. Um, yeah, and and also the uh, false maiden ending. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Steve Harris all over yeah, that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but wow, what a song! Thanks. What a song. Excellent. Shall we move on to the next one? Yep. Feels like a strange arrangement, that one. Isn't it? I'm all right with it. I think to go back into another verse then would have made it a bit like, just because of the tempo of it. Yeah. It's taken a long time to grow on me as that song. I do like it. Again, I like lots of bits in it. Um, It's ridiculously fast in that middle bit. Yeah. Some of those triplets in that middle bit are, you know, crazy fast. And the verse, the 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 riff when it first comes in, is almost a bit too, you know, like "Don't Tread on Me" kind of, you know, like one of yeah. those kind of riffs. It's just, yeah, it's, I'm I'm not quite sure about it, but yeah. it's brutal again. I know I've said that word about a million times, but. They were very angry young men, weren't they? They were, they were. I mean, I, I, I've put down a um, grinding riff like the thing that should not be. Yeah. Um, but unlike the thing that should not be, it shifts and moves mm. and changes accent yeah. and yeah. and keeps you uh, engaged <clears throat> with it, you know. Um, I've put back the verse riff, uh, verse riff um, fluid shifting and hard to pin down. Mm, very good. Um, it just, you know, it feels like it's just always on the move, almost like Kirk Hammett's Master of Puppets solo just yep. slipping away from him all the time. It feels like it's kind of like a, it's like a slippery octopus that you just can't get hold of. I'm sure that's what they were. That's probably what they were thinking. Fleming Rasmussen probably yeah. said, "Right, guys, <laughs> guys." <laughs> Is he think, Danish? Is he Danish? He is, is he yeah. Danish? Okay. Think of this song like a slippery octopus that you can't get hold of. And, and they all went, right. We, yeah. I'm with you. 
I'm with you, Fleming. Yeah, with you all the way. Um, I've also put down that this is one of, um, or seems like one of Lars Ulrich's straighter moments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, There's certain bits in some of his songs where you can just, you can see what's coming later on, you know, with the more simple drum beats. And maybe over the years, he's thought, oh, I actually quite like playing some of this stuff. You know, like the yeah. stuff where there's more of a groove to it. And it's more, you know, the ACDC school of drumming, you know, in the simplicity. Yeah. And also uh, Kirk Hammett's solo. Like, I, I read um, that he was listening to a lot of Steve Vai mm. and Joe Satriani, who, of course, was his guitar teacher for a while. Well, there was a lot of, it was like being about being a virtuoso, wasn't it? You know, a lot of yeah. metal and guitar. And remember the guitar magazines we used to read and stuff? It was yeah. all about fastest, you know, sweet picking, just all those yeah. techniques which are really, really evident on this, which is, you know, which you can really, really hear um, in his playing on this and a couple of, you know, the next album especially. Um, yeah. I feel like they were in competition with each other, a lot of these bands, those who, could, yeah. who produced the most kind of uh, complex solos or the fastest or just be appear to be more technically proficient. Yeah. I was about to say the swept arpeggios that open the solo are a, a, a trademark of the um, 80s fret wanker. Ingve um, Malmsteen. Yeah, yeah, scalloped frets and all exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. But yeah, Kirk Hammett, you know, great guitarist, you know, bit, solo's a bit fret wonky. Um, fits the songs. Fits, fits the, the songs, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then after the solo, they hit you with the best riff in the song. Mm. Great riff, that. Great riff. And and the song, like I, I wrote down here um, as it was going along, um, tempo picks up um, and never looks back. Mm. It's true. Which I, I genuinely thought that, it, you know, having not listened to Leopard Messiah in its entirety... You expected a third verse? I was kind of expecting it to come back into the verse, mm. and it kind of does go back to that riff for the last sort of 30 seconds of the, the mm. tune. Um, but I think there's a lesson here for the thing that should not be, um, where, the, you know, they sort of do the grinding mid-tempo thing and then just pick it up and yeah. run. Um and which is what this song does to great effect. Should we move on? Yes, let's. So eight minutes twelve of Orion, no lyrics. It says here eight minutes twenty-seven. Oh God, I don't know. Then maybe I've got wrong information. It says eight twenty-seven on Spotify. Right, I'm going. Well, but you know, let's believe Spotify. What's, what's fifteen seconds between friends? No. So, how do, what do you reckon the intro is? That distorted sound. If I had to guess, I would say it was a Hammond organ. Yeah, I've read that. Hammond organ, Leslie Speaker. Yeah. I think Cliff played organ. I've read there's a couple of bass tracks Does on he... it as well. Sorry, can I just ask? Put it inside her. Put it inside her. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Chris <Nope>. Bell. <laughs> Go on, carry on. <laughs> Yeah, so he wanted the uh, he wanted it to sound like a wall, like a big wall of music for the drums to fade in. I quite like the drums fading actually. Yeah. Really simple drum beat as well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the demo version has got a synth instead of mm. that bass Hammond, whatever Hammond. 
Yeah, Hammond is Leslie it, type thing. Is it like a little Casio keyboard? Yeah, it sounds really weird. But if you look at the notes, those Fleming Rasmussen, Fleming machine, the um, the studio notes, it does yeah. say synth on it, right? And they put a big like exclamation mark after it, as if they were thinking, mm, "I'm not sure about this." Yeah, but yeah it does sound a bit weird. Um, it's not exactly Flock of Seagulls, though, is it? No, it's not. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> OMD. Yeah, so it's the, yeah probably named after the constellation Orion. Not a Ford Orion. My dad had a Ford Orion in the 80s. It yeah. might be that. It could, or a Vauxhall it could be Orion. That. Ford yeah, Orion. It would have Ford Orion. I mean, it's a great car. It's worthy of a song, I'd say. Yeah. Company car of choice. So Lars Ulrich called it nine minutes of ever-changing, mind-provoking, weird and wonderfulness. Would I disagree with him on that? I don't think I would. Mm-hmm. Good. Chris think, Go on. I think in terms of um, its um, melodic and harmonic content, it's... Yeah. Streets ahead of anything that they'd done up until that point. Cliff Burton's bass section was the starting point for the song. Cliff Burton came up with a very different sounding piece to anything we'd done before, Ulrich explained in a magazine. To me, it sounded like a Swedish folk song. We really liked listening to it and playing it, so we just based the whole song around that middle part. So the Swedish folk song, do you think he means like the boom, 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 because it's there, is it six? I don't know what the time signature is, but um, I know, I, I yeah. kind of know what he means. It has got yeah. a funny little feel to it, hasn't it? And I think yeah. it's like it was in the middle of sanitarium to start off with before they moved right. it. Really? So it was almost That's like just a little bit of music that they didn't quite know what to, well, I say they don't know, they didn't know what to do with maybe, yeah. you know, they just wanted to find the right place for it to go. Um, yeah. So the, the the isolated bass parts were enlightening for this, because like with most Metallica songs, it's mixed quite low. Um, but I did I never realised until maybe in the last two or three years that the last solo in it is double tracked bass. Really? Yes. The story has it that Kirk Hammett put a solo on, and then he had to go. Then he went away for whatever reason. They were in Denmark, so maybe he went home for whatever reason. And then Cliff Burton just went in and kind of tried something, the solo. I think he based it on Kirk Hammett's solo, then double-tracked it, and that's what you hear at the end. Right. And when you listen to it, you can kind of... It's in the upper bass kind of register. I didn't... I, I, I did read Kirk Hammett saying that he'd nicked a solo off him, and I was thinking, where? Yeah. Like, hang on, I'm just going to play it now. That is very impressive yeah. um, that... Uh, I mean, it, it speaks to Cliff Burton's immense talent. It does. He can play note for note on strings like <laughs> infinitely thicker than Kirk Hammett's yeah. top strings. I think um, he did. I think he did use quite light strings by all accounts. But um, right. yeah, I didn't realise until um, you know, like we were saying before, the advent of being able to listen to isolated bass tracks and YouTube and people covering things and just. You know, there's a lot more information about stuff out there now, isn't there? I mean, you can... Yeah. yeah. That's, that's that's really quite impressive to me. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? Um, yeah. it's uh, and, and it never, ever twigged, like, in the many, many years that I've on and off listened to that song. It's never twigged that that's a bass guitar, but now I know that it's a bass guitar. Mm. It absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Just listening to the timbre of it and the... Because I, th- I remember at the time, it, it, I think it said in... In the sleeve notes, I looked at them for a number of years. It said Cliff Burton's bass solo on it, and I remember thinking, "Is that what constitutes a bass solo? Just the little, you know, boom, the, yeah, boom, just boom, that boom, bit." Boom. I thought, yeah. well, "That's not really a bass solo, but maybe it is." 
Yeah. Uh, but that must have been what they were. That must have been what they were yeah. referring to. I like to think that um, Kirk Hammett had been trying to nail that bit for yeah. ages and ages, and, and he just went, "Give it here." Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Fleming Rasmussen Cliff Burton sat in at mixing desk sort of side-eyeing oh, Fleming Rasmussen tapping his fingers yeah. on the mixing desk and Fleming Rasmussen is like hey Kirk why, why don't you take a break for yeah. two minutes why don't you fly back to Los Angeles <laughs> for four days <laughs> and then just give yourself a break it's like a reverse Colin, Colin Grigson yeah. <laughs> who's that playing guitar yeah very good um, yeah Excellent, excellent. So let's have a listen to the last song. So just nice calm ending to the album. Yeah. Just yeah. to bring you down slowly. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's in the same mould as Battery and Disposable Heroes, isn't it? Um, it is, it is. And again, it's got another, this has got a lot of Cliff Burton influence on it. The intro, excuse me, the intro is um, quite a few layers of bass, I think. Yeah. I think you're probably better identifying the effects and stuff like that, like a volume pedal and... Yeah, I mean, it just seems to swell in, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, but it seems to be sort of quite um, sustained as well. I think, I don't know if it's reversed or not. It's based on a back piece called Come Sweet Death. Very... Uh, um... I've listened to it. It, it. You can tell where it's come from, but it doesn't really sound like it. And I think he ran it past Kirk Hammett just to say, does it sound very much like it? And yeah. I think he said, no, you'd be all right. Um, Interestingly, it, I, I've, I've written down here that it's it sounds just sounds very eighties, quite synthy. Yeah, film soundtracky. Yeah, yeah. I was, I've put um, I've put Blade Runner mm. down, you know, or maybe Dune, or I've know. never seen either of them. Um, well, you should. I know I should. You should. You sh- you, your life is incomplete uh, currently. Um, so, <laughs> so go see Blade Runner and Dune, and everything will be fine. Um, if I was a doctor, that's what I would say to all my patients. Okay. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Um, I was going to... One of the things that I put down was um, the opening riff and the drums just don't seem to match. Which, which... To me, you know, like at the start when it all kicks in. With the actual beat? Yeah. It, it, it's because the riff goes over into the next bar. Right. So right. I know what you mean. Because I thought that, and it's, I still find it, I've, I've tried to play along to it, and I've tried to get my head around where it goes, but it's difficult to explain it without having a guitar in my hand, but I know exactly what you mean, but it's because the end of the riff kind of overspills into the next bar. Right, right. That'll be why then? Yeah. Because yeah, it, it, it does feel a bit like um, just Lars Ulrich hammering yeah. the snare drum on every yeah. beat, regardless of yeah. what's going on around him. Mm. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. <laughs> Um, I've also written down here, um, headbanging heaven. Do you remember when headbanging was a thing? I do, yeah. Um, and it made the news because a few folks shook their brains up and ended up in hospital. Mm, yeah. um, if if you were in the mid-80s and you were looking for a song to headbang to, um, this is an ideal candidate, I would say. Yeah, I think you're probably um, right. I can remember in the mid-80s going to St Mary's Parish church disco mm. and um which was in the parish center just outside where the church was, it was carnage that one it? Oh, it, was, <laughs> it was mental mate it mental. was absolutely everyone mental. was off their tits <laughs> yeah. um but two um lads from the avenues turned mm. up 
Oh God! I know they were looking for trouble um, at St Mary's Parish Centre, <laughs> and and they were wearing denim, like ripped denim jackets, and right. you know with the sleeves torn off and patches and leather and Virgins. spikes, and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and they walked up to the DJ who was like a right miserable bastard, um, and gave him a a, tw- a, tw- a seven inch single and said, basically, will you play this? Right. What was it? Uh, Slayer. What it? <laughs> yeah. I, I can't have been there. And he and he put it on, and they immediately like took to the middle of the floor and started head banging like there was no tomorrow. And they ended up like where they were actually on their hands and knees, right. head banging in the middle of the room with all these kids dr- drinking like, panda pops drinking- and eating wheat crunches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like going what. <laughs> What the fuck is going on here? Yeah, but I'll wait for Boxer Beat to come on yeah. and they're doing that. <laughs> yeah, but to the DJ's credit, he played the whole song. Well, bless him. And as soon as the it Slayer finished, song probably took about two minutes, didn't it? Handed them the record back and they just walked out. Yeah. So they just basically turned up to headbang for three minutes and then... Fair play to them. Bug it off, yeah. Fair enough. If you're into something, yeah. let the whole world know. And that's the place to do it. That's the place to do it, definitely. St Mary's Church on a Tuesday night. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I also wrote down here uh, Fred Wankin solo. Yep. Um, but the transition back into the opening riff is particularly mm. impressive to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. What a, amazing. What a statement! Like you know, the the two shortest songs on the album, like bookending the whole thing, mm. but being the most intense. Um, Musical experience, yep, um, of the whole eight tracks. I think going back to what you said about this album being overlooked by us at the time, I think we were so into Injustice for All, or I was so into yeah. Injustice for yeah. All that I, I, I don't think I ever gave this much of a chance. Well, I, I didn't give it a chance, um, because my dad brought it home, oh, yeah, um, but it wasn't until I don't think it was until I saw them play in Sheffield right. on the Black Album tour where they played, you know, Master of Puppets and yeah. I think they played Battery. But it wasn't until I saw them play some of these songs live that I actually thought, oh, I need to get back into... Do you know the bit that I hated that? most about that gig? Go on. When they did the uh, medley of Justice <laughs> for All stuff. <laughs> And even as like a, how old were we? Seventeen. I remember just thinking, you can't do a medley. Honestly, it's like a it's like a greatest hits reunion tour. Yeah. Um, I, but also, um, I was thinking back. I was more inclined to listen to Kill 'Em All than Master Puppets. Yeah. At the time, it was Weird, Kill 'Em All it? and and Garage Days and Unjustice for All. They were the like Metallica right. go tos for me. Right, Sheffield Arena. November the 1st, 1992. Yeah. We don't have to leave this in, but it's just interesting. No, it is interesting. I want to know what what songs of Master Puppets they were playing. Well, they did Ecstasy of Gold. Yeah. Then Enter Sandman. Yeah. Creeping Death. Yeah. Harvester of Sorrow. Mm -hmm. Sanitarium. Yeah. Sad But True. Uh, Wherever I May Roam. Mm -hmm. Bass Solo. (sighs) No. No, okay. Just go, yeah. Um, Through the Never, Unforgiven, Eye of the Beholder, Blackened, Frayed Ends of Sanity and Unjustice for All, uh, Guitar Solo, yeah. 
nothing else matters. Uh, for whom the bell tolls, Fate to Black, Master Puppets, short version. Really? Well, I don't know what that... I can't remember what that <sighs> must have been. See, I'm sorry, I've just tainted your, your view of it. So you can destroy extended version, so that kind of makes up for it. Uh, Whiplash, One, Last Caress, Am I Evil and Battery. I thought they'd played Battery. I yeah. did have a vague recollection of it. Um, so basically, they played the three bigger hitters. So, yeah, Battery, Master of Puppets, Sanitarium. Yeah. There you go. So, um, should we talk about um, the recording? Yep, let's get the, into it. Of the album. Um, as we know, um, it was recorded between September and December 1985 at Sweet Silent Studios uh, in the Danish capital of Copenhagen. Um, that said, there are going to be some pronunciations here of Danish place names. Oh, I'm looking forward to this. Um, which may prove problematic, but we'll see. Um, okay, so Sweet Silent Studios, uh, it opened its doors in February of 1976 on the island of Amar, which I believe is how it's pronounced. It's spelled A-M-A-G-E-R, um, but it's pronounced Amar, mm. apparently. Um, situated in the Ersund Strait, um, which is the stretch of water that separates Denmark from Sweden. Um, it's on the, upon the northern part of which sits the Danish capital of Copenhagen. Um, the studio was originally built by Danish engineers Freddie Hansen, Stig Kreitzfeldt, uh, and future Metallica producer slash engineer Fleming Rasmussen. Rasmussen began his career as an assistant engineer at the age of 18 at uh, Rosenberg Studio, um, at which Hansen also worked. And when Hansen moved to open Sweet Silence, he, th- he brought Rasmussen with him. Uh, and Rasmussen uh, became co-owner of the studio in 1980 uh, and ultimately took full ownership of the studio in 1999. Uh, Rasmussen's breakthrough album as an engineer came in 1991 when he recorded Rainbow's Difficult to Cure album, uh, which subsequently caught the attention of Metallica, who hired Rasmussen and Sweet Silence to record their second album, Ride the Lightning. Uh, Sweet Silence Studios were ri- widely regarded as Denmark's premier recording facility, Uh, for much of its existence, attracting a whole variety of internationally recognised artists, such as Dr Hook, who uh, recorded Making Love and Music there. That would have been an interesting session to be at. So uh, we've done the middle eight. What comes next? (laughs) Well, now we make love. Very good. Thanks. who else? Ringo Starr uh, recorded um, what I've written down here as a largely unreleased and aborted recording session. Right, okay. Um, which, given the, you know... Is that what t- the title of the album was? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it hit the shelves and uh, surprisingly didn't uh, sell that well. Um I don't know why it was aborted. I imagine it might have been something to do with Ringo Starr's... Um, Drumming? Possibly. Um, mixed with his alcoholism might have been... All right. I'm not, I don't know too much about know. Ringo Starr's and, and, his, and his vices, to be honest. Well, 
Yeah, he, he he was up there with Keith Moon. And, was he? And I didn't realise that. Yeah. I didn't, oh, yeah, I, I didn't yeah, know he, that. He went right off the rails. Um, Chet Baker Quartet. Oh, very good. Recorded an album called No Problem there. Um, I did wonder, given that, um, you know, Chet Baker, again, uh, had an addiction. He was a heroin so, addict. I yeah, no, no strange to the bottle either, I don't think. No. There's um, a theme. Yeah. Um, I did wonder if, if Chet Baker in particular was attracted to recorded in Copenhagen because maybe it was easier to get drugs. I don't know. Allegedly. Maybe. Allegedly. Maybe. Maybe. Um, and then <coughs> came, obviously came Rainbow, Difficult to Cure and Bent Out of Shape, um, right. both albums recorded at Sweet Silence. Metallica came along um, and recorded Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. Um, and then finally Ace of Bass recorded Cruel Summer. Did they? Yeah, they Bananarama did. cover? Yeah. Blimey. So there you go. From the pictures, it looks like a proper old school 1980s, 1970s recording studio, doesn't it? It's not like the more modern ones that you might see uh, people in nowadays. Yeah, and just, just for the benefit of the uh, listeners, just tell us which, uh, which book you are looking at those pictures in. So a good source of information if you want to know much about, um, or anything really, about Master of Puppets, the recording of it, leading up to recording of it and then the subsequent tour uh there's a very nice thick hardback book called back to the front metallica endorsed it's got a forward by james hetfield and then afterward by ray burton cliff burton's dad um which was put out to celebrate the 30th anniversary which would have been now 2016 is that right? right who wrote the book matt taylor Matt I'm not Taylor. sure what connection he had with the band, whether he's just like a super fan um, and he managed to get, but it is meticulously researched. Uh, and it's a really good read. It's very, very good. So a lot of the stuff that we refer to in this podcast has been taken from photographs of the recording sessions and around that time. And and like you say, the studio does look very much like your atypical old school Dingy, dingy, yeah. <laughs> recording studio. Uh, one of the things that I think Lars Ulrich in particular has commented on is the fact that the hours that they kept, they never saw daylight. No. Is it that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they basically were in the studio and it was dark the whole time. Yeah, um, they were there, um, and it looks it looks dark. It does, yeah, and a bit dingy. Sweet Silence Studios has existed in, in four different locations in the course of its history. Um, according to Discogs.com, the original studio was founded in 1976 by engineer and producer Freddie Hansen uh, and is located on the first floor of a building at Strandlodsvige. Yep. 85. That was like having Lars Ulrich in the room then. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, I expect it was. Uh, uh, in an industrial area of Amar. Um, the first recording session at Sweet Silence took place on the 17th of April 1976 uh, and produced the major uh, hit by Danish band Gasoline. Um, again, I don't know if this pronunciation is uh, is right, uh, but the song was called Vagavinu Lilladu. And what does that mean? I have absolutely right. no idea. Right, okay. Um, um, but... The song has 21 million streams on Spotify. Shall we have a listen? So, well, let's have a listen, yeah. Ah, yes, here we are. And what's the song called? Um, are you going to let me say it again? Yes. Vagavinu Lilladu. Vagavinu Lilladu. 
So there you go. Yeah, it's good that. 21 million streams. Um, okay, so um, we don't need to know about the rest of re- relocations. Suffice to say that uh, Metallica recorded Master Puppets uh, at the original um, building where the studio was. Um, and that building still stands today. And what is it now? Do you know? I, I, I don't know what it is now. Right. Um, I'll be honest. It's, it is in the industrial area, so it might be right, a warehouse yeah. of some Fair description. Fair enough. Um, but uh, if you look on uh, Google Maps, uh, it would appear that the building that originally housed Sweet Silent Studios uh, is still standing. So if you want to go on a Master of Puppets pilgrimage, you could. Correct. Or a Dr. Hook making love and music pilgrimage. Yeah. You could do that too. Oh, what was the name of the band? Gasoline. Gasoline, yeah. If you wanted to go on... Uh, oh, God, what, how, how do you say it? If you wanted to go and sing uh, Vague Vinu Lilladu... Where it was originally recorded. Outside, on the pavement, you could quite easily do that. Yeah. And I would encourage people to actually do that. Okay, okay. So the centrepiece of uh, Sweet Silent Studios um, is its 1976 Trident A-Range recording console. Um and it's one of 13 ever made. And Rasmussen still works on this console. To say? Has he not gone digital? Very date. No, I don't think he has. Well, he might have done. He might have sort of, you know, got a hybrid yeah. analogue digital arrangement. Um, but he's still using this desk. Um, so the, the um, a bit of info on the um, Trident A range um, from universalaudio.com. Um, the Trident A range uh, recording console was designed by Malcolm Toft, Barry Porter and legendary legendary producer engineer Roy Thomas Baker. You heard of him? No. Should uh, I have? Yes. Right, because you looked um, at me then as though you're going to know what this the, is. Yeah. Well, I, th- I thought you might. Um, uh, so he's uh, produced Queen. Right. And The Cars and uh, Devo. Right, okay. Who? Uh, Devo. Oh, right, okay. Devo. I you meant like Dave O, like... Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, like Steve O off Jackass. So. Yeah, no, it's not a nickname. Right, okay. It's not an Australian bloke called Dave. <laughs> Dave. Uh, no, it's Devo. I right, think. okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so um, the three um, had originally approached Rupert Neve about building a console, as Rupert Neve mentioned again, uh, that would meet the needs of Trident's, Trident Studios' uh, upgrade to a 24 track recording uh, facility at which Toft was the studio manager. Um, and when it became apparent that their specific needs would not be met, particularly with regards to the small size of the control room at Trident, um, they decided to uh, design their own console, mm-hmm. the result of which was the uh, Trident A-Range. Um, apparently, the Trident A-Range has uh, attained near mythic status in the professional recording industry. There's a lot of desks oh, no. that we've talked about. The, the- yeah, gained near mythic status. And who's to argue, unless you're really in the know? Well, this is it. There's very, very, very few people on yeah. the planet who would yeah. ever get to compare hmm. a Trident A-Range or a Neve. There'll be somebody, though, out there going, no, 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 no. Yeah. I some... think you'll find that, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, that it's vastly inferior to the whatever. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Again, this is um, another feature of, of near mythic mixing desks. Um, uh the console in general, specifically the EQ's frequency and tonal response, was tailored over a year's time at Trident, uh, with many of the in-house staff and independents offering their input for the Sonics, 
Um, the process was done almost exclusively by ear and is an important aspect of the Trident Tough Design approach, as evidenced by the enthusiastic lasting interest in the ear range design. Uh, as is often the case, consumer-driven products prove to be superior. Um, so basically, the EQ is notable for being amazing. Right, okay. Um, which, again, is something that's said of a lot of, you know, super expensive mixing desks. You would have thought, um, once you get to a certain level of, you know, expense or sophistication, that it's going to be marginal returns for the more you're spending on something, isn't it? Yeah. But for some people, those marginal returns make, like, all the difference, all the difference don't they? they do. You know, there are some very um, discerning folks out there. Um, okay, so um, Mix Magazine, uh, in its July 2001 edition, had this to say about the Trident A-Range. Um, though it had a very limited run, the Trident A-Range console gained a reputation for its very distinct and pleasant sound uh, with a very musical EQ section, uh, along with... Uh, Channel strips from early Neve and Helios consoles, original Trident A-range modules, have kept a healthy resale value and are much sought after by engineers who like to combine old-school analogue gear with leading-edge digital recording technology. That'll be what he does now, isn't it? Fleming. I reckon. Yeah. That probably describes Fleming Rasmussen's yep. uh, approach these days. So in addition to the um, Trident A-range console, Rasmussen also employed another classic piece of studio kit, uh, during the recording of Master of Puppets, uh, in the shape of the Yuri uh, 1176 compressor, um, Yuri sta- uh, standing for United Recording Electronics Industries. From an article uh, written by Sarah Jones for MixOnline.com, uh, Rasmussen uh, recorded to tape through the 1976 Trident A range console that he still works on today. Um, he used the desk's preamps and EQs and sent signals through a Yuri 1176 compressor to two synced 24-track tape machines. Uh, he generally committed uh, to sounds before printing them. These were all recorded on tape, so the performances you hear are what was played, says Rasmussen. My punching-in skills got really fine-tuned on those albums. So if, for people that don't know, yeah, what kind of... If you record something nowadays, you kind yeah. of do it on a computer, much yeah. in the way we're recording this on GarageBand. You can change the pitch of things, the speed. You can copy and paste things around, can't you? you yeah. could, in theory, you could play one verse on a guitar, and if the song's got four verses, you just copy and paste it, you know, yeah. four times, uh, three, three more times. Whereas what he's referring to here is you used to have to play every single part of every single song, didn't you? And punching in yes. is like you might mess up. Let's say you get the beginning of the second verse wrong. Yeah. What you could do is keep the first part of the song, and then when it gets to that first part of the second verse, for example, you would start the recording, and then you would continue from there onwards. Which yeah. is you don't tend to have to do so much, or it's not quite as I don't know how to explain it. Really, it's it's, it's not quite the same as how as, as some of the problems you would have with uh, recording back in those days. It's far easier now, isn't it? It is, yeah, um, and it, and it's not just about um, you know the the punching in and out of parts uh, that you need to re-record and overdub. Um, it's also about um, so so the practice of committing to a sound um, means to record or print, as they say in the article, a sound tape that has an unchangeable aspect to it. Um, so, as an example, uh, you might want to put delay effect on an instrument, and you can do this in two ways. Uh, you can record the instrument to tape without the delay and add it later mm. during the mix process. 
um, giving you greater control over the effect. Or you can record the instrument with the delay effect onto tape at the same time. So this is what's called committing to the sound um, and it can have a massive impact on how an album sounds overall. It's like baking a cake, basically. Mm. Once you've mixed your cake mix and you've baked it, you can't take out any of the ingredients individually because it's just, it's all mixed in together. Mm. Um, So in the instance of Master of Puppets, um, the uh, use of the Yuri... uh, 1176 peak limiter. What does that mean, though? So, um, the 1176 peak limiter is a dynamic range compressor uh, that was designed by Bill Putnam and introduced by Yuri in 1967. So it, it's basically um, it's basically a, a, a compressor that, that, that limits the dynamic range of a signal. So it pulls the quiet bits up and squashes the overly loud yeah, bits down, yeah, so you've got a more consistent sound volume. It, does it in a really musical yeah. way so yeah. um there's a couple of um uh, bits of praise here for the 1176 uh, mike shipley um who produced and recorded many famous artists including def leppard devo or devo sorry not devo he's not that australian bloke again uh diamond head desmond decker uh, and but Dan- nobody's ever said diamond head and then desmond decker no Straight after. No, so we've got Def Leppard, Devo, Diamond Head, Desmond Decker, Down By Law, um, and many other Lots artists. Lots of Ds. Probably not beginning with the letter D. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, he had this to say about the 1176. Um, quote, The 1176 absolutely adds a bright character to a sound, and you can set the attack so it's got a nice bite to it. Um, I usually use them on 4 to 1. Um, it's re- referring to the compression ratio, which simply put, uh, compression ratio of... 4 to 1 means that for every 4 dB of signal that goes in, 1 dB will come out. Hmm. Okay, so you've, you've reduced the signal by 3 yeah. dB there. Um, uh, yeah, so I usually use them uh, on 4 to 1 with quite a lot of gain reduction. I like how variable the attack and release is. Uh, there's a sound on the attack and release which I don't think you can get with any other compressor. I listen for how it affects the vocal, and depending on the song, I set the attack and release faster attack if I want a bit more bite. Uh, my preference is for the Blackface model, the 4000 series. I think the top end is especially clean. Um, so that's Mike Shipley's view of it. Um, in addition, Grammy Award winning producer and engineer Jim Scott, whose bands beginning with D are limited to just the Dixie Chicks and Dido, All right. um, said this, um, they have an equaliser kind of effect, uh, adding a coloration that's bright and clear, not only do they give you a little bit more impact from the compression, they also sort of clean things up. Maybe a little bottom end gets squeezed out, or maybe they are just sort of excitingly solid state, or whatever they are. The big thing for me is the clarity and the improvement in the top end. So um, these are probably the qualities that um, attracted Fleming Rasmussen um, to the 1176. He, he obviously um, liked the effect that the, the, the 1176 had on uh, the guitars and vocals enough to commit that compression to tape. So yeah, in the instance of uh, Master of Puppets, the compression effect was recorded to tape, um, embedded with the recorded audio signals, um, as opposed to being added later at the mixing stage. So this tells you a little bit about how Fleming Rasmussen went about capturing the songs on Master of Puppets, and maybe um, this was in response to how Metallica themselves wanted the album to sound. So again, from that uh, from that 
uh, Sarah Jones' article. Uh, the band was honing an, aggr- an aggressive, in-your-face aesthetic and no reverb was the mantra. Um, but that meant instead that I was recording a hell of, hell of a lot of ambient tracks, says Rasmussen, who took advantage of the cavernous space at the studio to capture room sounds. Um, so in addition to printing compressed sounds to tape, Rasmussen was also committing to the ambient qualities of Sweet Silence rather than relying on adding reverb effects afterwards. Reverb's like a very specific sound. Ride the Lightning's like got a lot of reverb on it, hasn't has it? it? It feels like it has. But if you ever, there's a YouTube video of Metallica with Fleming Rasmussen, I think it's probably done in the last two or three years. And they say it again in that, Jim Deppfield says, we said no reverb on it. I think they wanted it just to sound, I don't know if dry is the right word, but, you know, not have that reverby type quality to it, which can yeah. sometimes, if you it can place it at a certain moment in time, I think, you know, like reverb, a lot of it, some reverb sounds very 80s, yeah. doesn't it? Like a lot of chorus yeah. sounds very 80s, doesn't it? Especially so, on drums. Yeah. Like the 80s had a very sort of... Um, <laughs> Long snare drum sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so again back to that um, Sarah Jones article Sweet Silence had a vast 45 by 60 foot warehouse in the back uh, drums were recorded there to take advantage of the huge sound and ambience um, a bit of microphone uh, info for, for all those that are interested uh, Rasmussen says uh, it was an SM57 on snare top and bottom so he had an AKGD12 on the bass drum uh, one mic on each tom, which I don't know what the mic was because he doesn't specify. But I would guess, at the time, given the time, that it was possibly uh, a Sennheiser MD421. Mm. Um, I had three mics on cymbals and then four to six room mics, including a couple of Neumann U87s. So why would you have a room mic? Explain to what a room mic would do. Um, well, a room mic um, captures... So if you've got a big room, you can put your drum kit at one end of the room and put close mics on mm. the drum kit to record each individual drum, yeah. um, which will give you an indication of how the drum sounds from the drummer's perspective. Yeah. Um, if you want to know how the, that drum kit sounds from the opposite side of the room, stick a couple of mics on the opposite side of the room and record the sound from there. And the idea is you mix all of this together to get some yeah. kind of... You know, yeah. drum sound, which um, is a bit of a mix of the two. Yeah. So if if you if you listen to Master Puppets, you can what you would assume to be reverb, if you listen closely, is actually room ambience. Mm. Um, and and I can only assume that these room mics were were like dialed up to the eyeballs well, you know, the to get to get quite a strong room signal. Forty five by sixty foot warehouse in the back where they recorded the room mics. So in theory, you could have mics up to 60 feet away, couldn't you? Yeah. Which yeah. would give you quite a lot of ambience. Definitely, definitely would. Um, so this kind of, um, this approach to recording drums kind of reminded me of Pinkerton a little bit, um, because obviously, you know, they were all about the uh, mm. room ambience uh, at, um, uh, what's it called? I've forgotten already, Sound City. Sound City, that's, that's it. One. I can't believe I forgot that. Um, so um, when it came to recording the band, um, I think you mentioned uh, earlier that uh, they recorded drums, then guitar, and bass guitar came last. I think that came from Fleming Rasmussen, didn't it? Where he said that, I think he said, with Metallica's kind of music, you should record the bass after the rhythm guitars, because the rhythm guitars and that sound, that's 
that's the key part of the Metallica sound and the bass is there to support it. Whereas in other recording sessions, you know, like ones we've been on, you might record the drums and the bass at the same time and then you add things on top of that. But they kind of did it um, the opposite way around. Yeah, yeah. So um, I mentioned that because I'm now going to talk about um, recording Cliff Burton's bass guitar, um, which was probably the last instrument to go down um so i'm a bit out of out of sync here but again referencing uh the sarah jones article at mix online um recording burton's bass usually meant capturing uh one single performance for each song um burton didn't like headphones so rasmussen would set him up in the vocal booth uh with a big pair of jbl four triple three speakers um rasmussen says i'd blast the track through that and we'd do a di and the amp uh, and he would jump around like being at a gig with the sound blasting from these speakers. It's because it, normally in a studio you were like you sit down, don't you? And it's a very yeah. kind of like being under a microscope because you've got the headphones on and it's it feels like it's not pressurized, but you're very, very aware that it's being recorded. Yeah. I'd rather get this right sooner rather than later, otherwise I'm gonna have to keep going and recording it. But it sounds like he just went in a room and just played it as though it was gonna be live. Uh and that was it. But yeah. he, I think he did. I think Rasmussen's acknowledged that there were sometimes some kind of timing issues with him. If you're yeah. jumping about, you know, there's going to be slight issues with how you're playing, especially with yeah. fast technical music like yeah. this is. Well, to get around that, um, Rasmussen employed, I, th- I think, what is a fairly common uh, technique for um, studios that use uh, tape machines, in that he had everyone detune slightly and, and play to a slowed tape. Mm. So he would, he, you know, you tune down half a step, yep. then slow the tape down, and then on playback, speed the tape back up, mm. so that so that your recorded part is back up to concert pitch. You're right. I think a lot of bands probably did this because you know, like in the days of us working out songs back in the '90s and '80s, they weren't always at concert pitch, were they? You know, like there were no. some which were a bit sharp or a bit yeah. flat, and maybe that is a result of when they've been sped up or slowed down a bit. Yeah, it's not quite on the money tuning wise. Yeah. I kind of wish I didn't know that about this album, though. I had this image of them just playing everything at this speed in the studio, double tracking, treble tracking, whatever. Yeah, and when I heard that they slowed it down and they did it like that, it took a bit of the magic away. I think. Yeah. But I think we can thank that for the absolute precision. Oh, I know, not it's that, crazy. It's that, crazy precise, isn't it? Yeah, not, not that Hetfield couldn't overdub those rhythm guitars at concert pitch at normal speed, mm. but, you know, just slowing the tape down just that fraction probably just gave him a little bit of, you know, breathing space. I think we've touched upon before yeah. as well. At the time, there was a lot about technical proficiency in playing, wasn't there? Yeah. And they were yeah. motivated by that. I think Kirk Hammett said, you know, some of his favourite guitarists were like Steve Vai and... Um, Joe Satriani where yeah. and this is all really technical you know not much in the way of feel and kind of putting a, doing a mistake and leaving it in um, although they did in Master of Puppets didn't they in the solo so I can imagine why they did it I yeah. can, and like you're saying there's no doubt they could probably have played it um, at the proper speed because they've done it live and faster at that speed but yeah. for the microscope of the studio and considering what the trends were at the time of everybody being very very meticulous um, and virtuosos at what they were doing, then it's not surprising, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
this technique of slowing a tape down has been used widely on other recordings over the years. Um, recording sounds to a tape machine that's running faster, or in this case slower than the standard running speed, and then playing them back at the standard speed. So an early and quite extreme example of this technique to record vocals would be uh, the Chipmunks. Who'd have thought Chipmunks Who? in the Metallica podcast I know. would be mentioning I know. them? So the, the way that they achieved that high-pitched sort of warble, um, vocals were recorded in a normal voice at half the regular tape speed so that when they were played back at full speed, they did so a full octave above the pitch at which they were originally recorded, uh, giving rise to the ridiculous, tremulous, high-pitched vocal sound yep. that you can hear uh, on the songs. Whereas going back to what we said before, to achieve that now... All you would have to do is just do some digital process just to raise yeah. the pitch of it, and that would be it. It wouldn't be quite as probably uh, laborious yeah. as this method. Yeah. So so um, what this technique uh, would have done for Master of Puppets, um, it would have, as we've said, it would allow the instruments to be recorded at a slightly slower tempo, uh, making uh, some of the faster, more rhythmically complex passages easier to play and with greater accuracy. Uh, and therefore easier to overdub and layer up the parts. That's uh, the thing, isn't it? Because yeah. there's so many overdubs on this. You know, I think there's probably... Is it like five guitar, two in each speaker and one down the middle, or is it even more than that? Well, uh, Rasmussen says here, uh, the rhythm at no point uh, was less than four guitars, and at some point it's eight guitars. So if you're looking at complex rhythms like Disposable Heroes verse, um, the verse of Battery the verse of Damage Incorporated, you know, all of these, I reckon they were all slowed down because they yeah. are very, very, very difficult to um, to play on the money every single time because they're so fast and they're not overly complex, but they've got a very specific rhythm to them, aren't they, which could yeah. easily sound a bit weird if you've got six guitars and one of them's a bit off. Yeah, I mean, I mean it kind of... When, when you try and um, record complex rhythmical patterns like that if if one beat is slightly out it's massively apparent mm. even if one guitar mm. is slightly out on, in one place um and it kind of makes you sort of think of that you know the um really short slap back echo yep. effect yep. it's kind of yep. like that mm. um live you can't really notice it can you because you're in the, no. heat at the moment and they probably wouldn't notice it so much but in a studio then it all needs to be um Bang on. Yeah. So um, Rasmussen says uh, about recording the guitars, uh, we'd do James's sound on his guitar with his amp, and then he would double that performance on Kirk's guitar. Uh, we'd do Kirk's guitar, maybe find a new sound, and would double track that on James's guitar. So why would you? Why can't you use the same sound? Well, the same guitar. Yes. Um, well, obviously, different guitars have different sonic qualities, and you know, variety is the spice of life. Um, but also, you know, as an extreme example, if you were recording the same part, you could record one take on a like a Les Paul yep. to give you that sort of beefy, humbuckery kind of sound. And then, you know, the, a second take on, a, on a, uh, the bridge pickup of a Fender Strat, mm. which would give you quite a thin... Yeah. Um, you know... Um, Adam, and add them together, you get... Yeah, but when think, you blend them together, mm. you get something that's bigger than the sum of its parts. Because if you do the same sound six times, I think it makes it sound smaller in a way, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Whereas if you if you spice the sound up by variety wise and then you mix them all together, 
in that way you can make things sound a bit bigger and you yeah. can yeah i think that's what they did didn't it yeah yeah so um a bit more info for the um for the microphone geeks out there uh, rasmussen often used sm57s as both both close mics and room mics and would place an Apex Studio EQ on the guitar amp's insert uh, to further fine-tune the sound. Now, I've been looking at some pictures in the uh, Matt Taylor book. It is Matt Taylor, isn't yep. it? Yep. Uh, back to the front. Um, and there is, like, there's a picture of James Hetfield's um, Boogie Mark II C+, which we will get onto. And there is a little circuit on top, on the right-hand side. Oh, yeah. Um, which is like an open circuit it's like a it's like on a piece of strip board or something and i'm just wondering if this is something that fleming rasmussen might have added in it looks very bespoke doesn't it like somebody who's got a bit of electrical knowledge has kind of created a custom one-off for them which it doesn't matter how professional it looks yeah it just needs to function yeah and that's it looks like it's on a a concrete brick as well mounted on a concrete brick on top of the uh the boogie head so um, he then printed verse guitars on one track, chorus and bridge guitars on other tracks. Hence the two 24-track machines synced together, giving them essentially 48 tracks mm. to work with so that they can double-track separately verse uh, uh, guitar parts and chorus and bridge guitar parts separately. And, I, and I'm guessing that this is so that Hetfield wouldn't have to do like an eight-and-a-half-minute eight long song is a lot to focus on when you're recording. Especially if you're doing it six times yeah, or, you yeah. know, four, five, six times, yeah. Yeah, so if, if you know that you've only got to get to the first chorus, yeah, it kind of takes a bit of the pressure off. You're not thinking, shit, I've got to get the whole thing right in <laughs> yeah. one go, you know. Um, so I'm imagining that that's why they, they did it that way. Um, so Rasmussen says, uh, then if the B part sounds different, That's a new batch of four tracks. And then the chorus could be a new batch of four tracks, he says. Uh, Sometimes on top of that, there's power chords and sometimes there's four-part harmonies going on. Everything was written down because otherwise we wouldn't remember what the hell we had done. Um, Given uh, the number of overdubs described here, it's not wholly surprising that Rasmussen would prioritise performance accuracy in employing such technique. Um, so if you, if you visit Fleming Rasmussen's website, fwrproduction.com, um, you will find his actual production notes that he made during the Match Puppet sessions, uh, which contain all kinds of interesting little insights into the recording process, uh, including EQ settings for various instruments, uh, guitar amp settings, uh, microphone selections, and notes on timings slash arrangements of the songs. You have reached the end of side one, well done. Say the rest of the programme, please fast forward and turn over the cassette. Thank you for listening to the Rock Geeks podcast. If you have any comments, corrections and or constructive criticism, you can contact us at therockgeeks at gmail.com. If you have anything unnecessarily rude to say, please put it in your own trash folder and delete it to save us the bother. While we do read every email we receive, we cannot unfortunately guarantee a reply. 
The Rock Geeks is researched, written and presented by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Jingles composed and recorded by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Editing by Phil Greenwood. If you have enjoyed The Rock Geeks podcast, please consider joining us at Patreon, where in exchange for your generosity you will receive ad-free episodes, bonus content and early access. Or alternatively, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review and tell your friends about us. 